This teaching comes to you from the team at St. Mark's, Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. The first reading is from Job, chapter 14, verses 1 to 14. A mortal, born of woman, few of days and full of trouble, comes up like a flower and withers, flees like a shadow and does not last. Do you fix your eyes on such a one? Do you bring me into judgment with you? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one can. Since their days are determined and the number of their months is known to you and you have appointed the bounds that they cannot pass, look away from them and desist that they may enjoy like labourers their days. For there is hope for a tree if it is cut down, that it will sprout again, and that its shoots will not cease. Though its root grows old in the earth, and its stump dies in the ground, yet at the scent of water it will bud, and put forth branches like a young plant. But mortals die, and are laid low, humans expire, and where are they? As waters fail from a lake, and a river wastes away and dries up, so mortals lie down, and do not rise again. Until the heavens are no more, they will not awake or be roused out of their sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath is past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If mortals die, will they live again? All the days of my service I would wait until my release should come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The second reading today comes from Mark 16, verses 1 to 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man, dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been, he has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And all that had been commanded them, they told briefly to those around Peter. And afterwards, Jesus himself sent out through them, from east to west, and sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Give us grace, O Lord, not only to hear your word with our ears, but also to receive it into our hearts and to show it forth in our lives for the glory of your great name. Amen. Well, please be seated. Uh, and um, 
Just to continue our theme today, of course, the first time the word Christ is risen, they were uttered. They were uttered in Greek, Christos Aneste, uh, which I think Greek Christians still say to one another today. Up in the, to- the top end of Australia, in Creole, they say, Jesus Christ, bin up brom debala. In the Torres Strait, uh, the Amplatok language, they say, Jesus Christ, bin up Lapwangen. Uh, in the East Arnhem uh, land, they say, in, in the, the language which is called Japraponyu, they say, Jesu Christani Walnyan Yaka Rakruni. No one correct my pronunciation there. Uh, and in the, in the desert down in uh, the Pichanjara lands, they say, Jususanyu Christania Wankaringu. Uh, in uh, Perth and to the south of southwestern Australia, they, uh, the, the Nayunga language, they say, Jesus Kwaja Yirbayan. Uh, and then in the uh, Awabakal language, which is the language of Lake Macquarie, now extinct sadly, um, but reconstructed by a missionary who, who worked to translate the Bible in that language, and that's the best local language I could find, uh, they, say, they used to say, Bangalan, Buddha, Yuna, Birwalda. In Arabic, they say, Al Masih Kam. In Singalese, Christus Vahanse, Utana Viaita. In Afrikaans, Christus het Augustan. Um, in Mandarin, please don't laugh at my pronunciation. I mean, Mandarin, so hard. Helistusiose uh, fuhuole. Any Mandarin speakers? They're, look, they're, they're, they're shaking their heads. Um, in Uyghur, to the west of China, in the west of China, they say Isa Tirildi. In Korean, again, this is going to be terrible. But anyway, Yesunim i Buhal. Hasyosada. No? Okay. Uh, in Swahili, Christo Amifufuka. In Hungarian, Christos Feltamat. In Polish, Christos Zvat Vikstal. Uh, in Ukrainian, Christos Voskres. Uh, in German, Christos is Alphastanden. In French, Le Christ ist Resuscite. And in Kiwi, Christ is Rosen. How many years can I tell that joke? (laughs) Now, it was early in the morning, and the three grief-stricken women gathered in the dark. They prepared their spices, whispering each other so to not wake the others up. What they're about to do is a solemn and tender duty. It was the task of care for the dead body of a loved one. Now, you put spices on the body to moderate the rot that comes with death. They'd clearly accepted the absoluteness and permanence of what had happened to Jesus. They'd seen with their own eyes that he had been killed, and well, that was it. There was no comeback from here. This was the end, and all that was left was the duty of caring for the body. As they made their way to the tomb, though, there was one thing that they had forgotten. They asked each other, who will roll away the stone? Jesus had been placed in a rich man's tomb with a heavy circular stone cut into a groove across the entrance, a stone that would take several men uh, a bit of effort to shift. Three women stood no chance. The tomb would serve as a place for the rotting away of the body. After a couple of years when nothing but bones were left, they would have planned to have collected the bones and put them in a stone box called an ossuary. Clearly, the women expected the tomb to be undisturbed. Now, there was a practical reason for this burial practice, of course. Grave robbery is as old as graves, as any Egyptologist will tell you. 
there are always people ready to steal the artefacts of death and, you know, even to steal dead bodies themselves to use in whatever magic or medicine you can think of. Graves are not only places to keep the rotting body from befouling the air, they are places to keep the dead safe because the dead cannot, it turns out, protect themselves. We are buried six feet under, not because the living fear that we will return like the walking dead, but because we want to keep the dead from desecration, from animals or other human beings. The dead cannot do much, it turns out. They certainly cannot break free from their graves. Indeed, the authorities had posted a guard at the tomb, as Matthew tells us in his gospel. But they didn't post the guard on the tomb because they wanted to keep Jesus in. It wasn't like some prison cell that they were keeping the dead body in. No, they wanted to prevent the theft of Jesus' body since he had been such a controversial figure. The threat came from this side of the stone, not from the other side. The heaviness, the weightiness of graves is also a symbol for us of the immovability and the permanence of death. Our Victorian ancestors loved to be reminded of this. They built cemeteries for the living as much as for the dead. They faced their grief. They obsessed about it. Queen Victoria herself wore mourning dress for years and years and years, decades after the death of her husband. And they built memorials in solid, weighty stone. A century and a half later, we cannot bear that weight. To walk around a Victorian-era graveyard, if you go up to Waverley Cemetery or to South Head, it's almost too confronting. Instead, it's our cultural habit to do everything we can to avoid facing the permanence, the disruption of death. The philosopher Ernest Becker, whose book The Denial of Death won the Pulitzer Prize, once wrote this. He said, the idea of death, the fear of it, haunts the human animal like nothing else. It is a mainspring of human activity designed largely to avoid the fatality of death, to overcome it by denying in some way that it is the final destiny of man. We are haunted by the weight of this question. Who will roll away the stone? No one can. I don't know if you've ever had an MRI. You had an MRI? A couple of years ago, I had a slip disc, so I was being scanned. And they basically, if you've never had one before, they put you on a tray and pack you in a tube and slide you in head first. And they do give you head, headphones to make it apparently, to play music, to apparently make it nicer, but it really isn't. It is a truly horrifying experience. Something about lying flat, unable to move in an enclosed space, it made me feel a rising nausea, sick to the stomach, but more than that, I felt sick to the soul. It felt like being in a coffin. It felt like death. What are we to do with the heavy weight of death? Well, we tend to do one of two things. The first is that we concoct myths about what lies behind it. Now, we've got a couple of possibilities here. One is the Eastern belief in reincarnation. You know, your soul is released from your body and according to the principle of karma, you pass on into another form of life. Now, another possibility is the one that we see in many mythological uh, backgrounds of many cultures, whether it be the ancient Egyptians or the Romans or my ancestors, the Vikings. 
For them, death was the passageway through to an afterlife. Sometimes that afterlife looks like heaven, but sometimes it's just a place of the dead, a place where the dead go to hang around like a sort of eternal Bondi Junction Westfield, if you can imagine that. In both of these cases, you prepare for life after death by living as good a life as you can in this life. The second thing we do with the immovability of the stone, we make the myths, the second thing we do perhaps if we don't believe the myths, is to cram as much activity into our lives as we can for fear of missing out. We want to be significant as we can be. Ernst Becker put it this way, what man really fears is not so much extinction, but extinction with insignificance. That is not as modern an idea as it sounds. The ancient Romans, or at least the educated males among them, hoped that they would live on in memory and reputation. They would do such noble deeds that we would remember them, and this way they would transcend death. This is why Russell Crowe's gladiator says, What we do in life echoes in eternity. Uh, But the problem with both of these responses to the fear of death is that they don't help us with the anxiety that we have about it. Because in both cases, death is a sort of judgment on us, isn't it? It's a moment of judgment. If we aren't significant enough, or if we aren't in the black, morally speaking, then we really have no hope at all. The dread, the haunted feeling, is made worse, if anything. The Egyptians imagined your heart being weighed against a feather. If your heart was heavier than that, with its sins, then it would be devoured. The secular version of that is that your legacy is in the hands of your children and their children, who may love you if you're lucky, but have other things to do than to keep your memory alive. But something else happened at the tomb the first Easter morning. The women did not expect it. They came to tend to a very dead body. They worried about a heavy stone that they could not possibly shift without help. But when they arrived at the tomb, they looked up, And they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. And when they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, which frightened them, of course. But this messenger said to them, Do not be alarmed, for you are looking at for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. This was to state the bleeding obvious. But it was a complete surprise. But notice how tangible the details of this story are, how three-dimensional they are. The stone, the empty tomb, the place where they laid him, the emotions of the women as they met, encountered something utterly surprising to them. They're not being asked to look into their hearts and find him alive there. They're not being told about some myth. They have been drawn as witnesses into an event that has actually happened. They are being asked to tell what happened to Peter and the disciples. And they are told that they will meet the risen Jesus himself. He has been raised. The stone has been rolled away. And by the power of God, Jesus now stands alive. Not alive in their memories... Easter is not a vague pagan myth of rebirth. 
Its power as a message comes because it is an event that occurred in a particular time and in a particular space. And Mark gives us two very helpful clues so that we know this. First of all, he's quite clear that the first witnesses to the empty tomb are who? It's the women, of course. Now, in the ancient world, women are not held to be reliable witnesses. So this may seem, in the ancient world, to be an embarrassing fact about the resurrection claim. If you were concocting a hoax, you would not give women this starring role. Secondly, the fact that it was such a surprise to the women shows that what they encountered wasn't something they had previously thought up as a story. They went to find a dead body. They came away, much to their astonishment, from an empty tomb. And so today we remember what they found. The stone has been rolled away. Death has been conquered. The unbearable burden of death that sits, that squats upon humanity has been lifted. We need not guess or speculate or invent anymore. Jesus walked free from the tomb. And the remarkable effect of this news, we can see it in the life of the disciples. They were not desperate to squeeze every ounce of pleasure out of life, to suck the marrow out of life or to make a name for themselves. They did not hope to transcend death by keeping their moral balance sheet in the black. They knew that Jesus Christ had already crossed the boundary between death and life for them. There was a likeness to the way they subsequently lived. I love that thought, that there was a sort of likeness of life that they had. You could see it in their generosity to the poor and the vulnerable. The, the way in which they accepted people across the social classes, the way in which the, the divisions of race and ethnicity were, were broken down in their kindness to one another, in their help for the sick, in their purity and their faithfulness, in their honesty, in their practicing of forgiveness, in their returning of the things that they had taken in previous lives, in enjoying eating and drinking with thanksgiving to God and all the good things that God gives them. And they, but they did not fear death. To their Roman neighbors, this is one of the most baffling things about them. They knew life was precious and they knew that dying is often unpleasant as it remains today. But they knew that there was more life to come. That holds true for us today, for you and me. So I, I ask you this Easter day, do you know this faith in your own life? Do you know this likeness of being? Do you know the rolling away of the stone? Have you felt the lifting away of its burden? That's the invitation of Easter. To live in the light of the empty tomb and to live in the light of the enduring life of Jesus Christ. And that invitation remains open for you and I today. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.